Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. This week, we're lucky enough to have as our guest, Spencer Clavin. Spencer is the Associate Editor of the Claremont Review of Books and the Claremont Institute's online publication, The American Mind. Um, he's also the author of Music in Ancient Greece, um, which I believe was his PhD uh, subject of expertise, um, and the author of a translation of, from, um, of the Book of Isaiah. So he knows plenty about um, ancient languages, including ancient Hebrew, Greek, Latin, which we'll talk about. Um, so he's an old school academic with all that it attends um, in a positive sense to that word. Uh, he's also the host of a wildly popular podcast where he explores through the lens of the Western canon, quote, I'm quoting from your your uh, materials here, Spencer, truth, beauty, and the stuff that matters. So welcome to High Noon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always glad when I hear that read back and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That is actually something that I said. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> what did I mean? Uh, but yeah, it's it's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. I think the first question I'm going to ask you is really an obvious one um, for somebody with a podcast proposing to talk about. Uh, the canon, uh, the the Western classics. I mean, how do you define the canon? Uh, I'm not asking you to list off every every um, book or tract that you've spoken about, um, but what are the qualities of a book or a philosophical tract that make it sort of a candidate for the canon? Um, and and what makes a one of something like this something that people it's still worth find worthwhile even millennia after they were written. You know, it's funny, I was just talking about this on the show because I did an episode about David Hume, who's a philosopher that I really don't like very much at all. And I, it was the first time really, you know, there's so much in the Western canon that is rich and sublime. And there's so much that I love that it's been easy to do this show for like a year now and only do people I like. But eventually, as you know, in order to be honest, you have to present folks you disagree with, folks you don't think are very good. And that does raise the question, like, how can I tell if it's, if it's not just a matter of personal taste, how can I tell what a great book is? And I think one thing, so I, you know, typically the kind of like elevator pitch that I give is this is, the, these are the cultural products of Athens and Jerusalem and their cultural inheritors. So this includes actually, for example, some Muslim interpreters of Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. But these two pillars, right, one of which feeds out into Christianity. I mean, Judaism, of course, like also produces the Jesus movement, which becomes Christianity. Uh, and, you know, Athens is during the fifth century BC, basically. I mean, it has other stuff before then going on. But during the fifth century, Athens it goes through this tremendous cultural flourishing, the products of which we're still living with. I mean, Socrates, right, is the kind of person that people point to, but Greek tragedy and all this stuff. Um, and so that then speaks to the next, your next question, right, which is how do you tell if a book or a painting or a person belongs? And the answer there is really that, you know, time is an important factor here. You actually can't, I actually can't tell you, people ask me all the time, like, what books are going to be in the canon that are being written right now? And I, I, I can't tell you that in some ways, because time does funny things um, to people. And for the 300 years since somebody like David Hume has existed, he has not only shaken the foundations of Western uh, of, of, of Western philosophy, but inspired a bunch of incredibly passionate sort of uh, debate from people who disagreed with him, just as I do. I mean, Immanuel Kant is a great example of this, another big name in the, in the Western canon. Um, and so, you know, these two pillars, which, which do kind of fuse together in the sort of outpouring of Christianity through the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire is like the late Roman Empire is like the sort of exporter of 
Christianity, as indeed it was the exporter of, of, of Greece as well. You know, uh, Polybius, the historian, says that the Romans were really good at cultural appropriation. This was maybe the best the thing they were best at was like finding things that other people did well. And so, yeah, like these these sort of gradual um, exports over time that stamp themselves into our souls if we grow up anywhere near Europe or America, or indeed at this point, it's becoming increasingly global, right? The, the important thing to understand here is that you're, you're studying things that you can't escape. Like there, there's, there actually is no jettisoning these works and you can hate them the way I hate David Hume, but you have to know them and you have to know that they exist and why. So that's kind of how I shape the, the podcast and what I talk about. That's an answer that would, of course, please uh, the Claremont Institute and Leo Strauss, Athens and Jerusalem and the products of uh, thereof. But that's an answer that is increasingly uh, controversial today, right? You, you said that essentially these are the products of particular civilizations um, that that had lots of contact, as you mentioned, um, about translations in, in the uh, Muslim world um, and, and how these ideas impacted on the, essentially the borders of what might be termed either um, Europe or Christendom or the West, right? Um, those borders are hotly contested and, and um, debated to this day. But that in itself is, is now a controversial stance, right? To, um, to, to claim that the products of this particular civilization are uniquely worth study, um, or at least Work, worth studying uh, in additional detail and with additional, you know, hours spent engaging with um, for our particular civilization. Isn't that, isn't that discriminatory, exclusionary, um, even racist? Yeah. Uh, well, I definitely get called, get called all of those things. So I assume that it must, it must be those things. Um, yeah. We've learned. Always believe the comment section. Always. I read it religiously. No, I actually never read comments at all. Um, I shouldn't say that because people should keep commenting uh, in the hopes that I will read things. Um, no, the, uh, yeah. I mean, we've, we've taught, we've been taught, I think, to associate love of one's own traditions with chauvinism and racism and all those nasty isms that you describe and that 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 happened for a number of reasons one of them i think is that the 20th century saw a lot of uh, excesses of nationalism and what happened i mean everything that is good this is sort of a, a central principle really of western philosophy everything that is good can be carried to excess and to extreme and so we've seen a lot of the excesses of nationalism we've been reminded again and again of you know what happens when uh, love of one's own veers over into tribalism. But it has to also be said that because of certain political projects, most notably social Marxism in this country, um, that has really been caricatured into, we have, we have been basically gulled into associating loving the traditions from which you come and being proud of and, and delighting in your history, um, which is something that everybody has to do if they if they want to survive, because there's no escaping your history, right? This is the thing. There is no escaping what you are, where you come from. Um, we've, been, we've been gulled into believing that that is inherently bad by, by caricatures, dumb caricatures of what it means to love the West. I mean, when I say that I am an unapologetic lover of Western culture, what people immediately hear is that I think there's nothing of value in, in other cultures, right? I mean, they're, they're, but, they're, but I never said that. Nobody ever said that. It's, it's not entailed. It doesn't follow. Um, in fact, there have been books that have guided me profoundly as a young as a young man, the Tao Te Ching notably, right, which, are, which is obviously does not fall under that purview. It comes from a totally different 
tradition. But, you know, I think there are there are elements of Western culture which which have proven universal and not time bound. And Christianity is a good example of, of an ideology, a Western ideology that at least aspires to be for everybody, for the whole world. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing actually wrong, I don't think, with saying, you know, this is my home, this is my own, my native land, the, 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 this notion of oikophilia or whatever you want to call it. Um, has been has been very terribly run down but the funny thing is that in the end it's actually your only option you you can you can learn to understand where you're from and to endorse it and to uh you know complicate it if you if you will but also to be to accept it and to love it or you can self-destruct and it seems that that's the path we've chosen um but i i guess i i just want to offer another path um well that that path has been quite appealing to a lot of people i mean um why do you think there has been so uh, such a huge response to your podcast? Not that uh, you're not a remarkable young man and not that you don't have remarkable things to say in your own right, but um, what, a large part of what you're doing is essentially reintroducing um, your listeners to what was once considered a classical education. Um, you know, why do you think that that has been uh, such a, a popular podcast, right? It's a, a new form of media. Um, it's it's definitely uh, sort of very much part of the modern world. Why is it that this has connected so deeply with, with so many listeners? Yeah, beats me. I mean, people must have terrible taste. I, <laughs> no, I, I, um, I, this was actually a huge surprise to me. I have to be honest with you, um, because thank you. You're very kind. But it's true. The podcast has has done very well. And I will tell you in truth that the the genesis of this podcast is essentially that I was out in the world, you know, writing and being a sort of jobbing intellectual. And people kept saying to me, oh, you should have a podcast. You should have a podcast. Because this is the thing, I guess, that one does now, right? And as you say, it's the, it's the hot new medium. Um, writer is sort of like not a career anymore. You have to build this whole brand. And so I was actually pretty resistant to it. I was like, what? There are so many podcasts. Everybody has one. What am I going to talk about? And so finally, I was like, all right, fine. If I'm going to do a podcast, then it's going to be like, I'm going to make no apologies for just talking about the stuff I want to talk about. And frankly, the stuff I want to talk about is super nerdy. I like I'm a PhD in classics. I want to talk about Homer and the greats. And I want to just like really focus on them in part because I find the fighting that we do about the classics really distracting. I mean, one of the first insights that generated this show is, you know, we, we always argue whether Homer should be taught or whether Greek should or shouldn't be taught. And we spend all that time doing that. We never actually read Homer. Like even those of us who are arguing for the great books are being distracted from actually reading them and letting them shape our, our souls. So I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll just offer this podcast into the world. I'm sure nobody will listen to it. Um, and the hunger that I discovered, right? I mean, this is what it was. It was just that people were being denied something. And as you say, what they were being denied is classical education. And so that was, as I did the show, I learned that that was what it was. This was a classical education. You know, I think it takes it takes a certain kind of set of skills to present these texts in an exciting way and to interpret them and uncover them. But, you know, it's really just the, the skills that teachers have. And there are lots of good teachers out there. But why is this show the one that people say, like, oh, I, you know, I've been waiting for this show or whatever? Um and, and, and especially, I think, why does it connect to people who are not typically thought of as like, you know, I intellectuals or whatever? I mean, I get a lot of wonderful notes that my favorite notes are like, I'm, I'm on my tractor and listening to you talk about Homer or I'm, you know, going to the gym or whatever, all these things. Um, 
I, I really do believe that this stuff has been so unfairly maligned and it's been maligned both weirdly as too stupid and too smart for people. On the one hand, this is, you know, it's just sort of dumb, atavistic, uh, chauvinist, racist, white people celebrating their own self. But then on the other hand, you know, it's thought that you can only talk about it if you have a several advanced degrees. And to me, neither of those things is true at all. And this used, as you say, to be obvious. I mean, you know, before the hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go of the 60s and 70s, right? Um, before that, this was just, it was sort of assumed that these were rich materials that had something to say to everybody. Not everybody goes off and learns Latin and Greek. Not everybody like spends his free time reading Plato religiously. But everybody can can grasp something from this. And, and people have been so starved of this on purpose. I mean, they took it away from us. You know, they, they genuinely did say, like, no, we can't talk about this for all the reasons that you suggest. It's racist. It's homophobic. It's evil. Um, and it's the opposite of all those things. It's food for the soul. So, yeah, I, I think it's it really is as simple as this was a thing that until very recently everybody acknowledged was good for everybody. And then that was basically scuppered, canceled. And it just, you know, it took the digital revolution to make it possible again, to democratize this, to offer it to people. I mean, it's a remarkable, it's an amazing miracle that you can just start up a podcast, grab a mic and start like ranting into it about Aristotle. That's like really cool, you know? Um, as we're having this conversation, just a few days ago, Princeton officially dropped uh, the Greek and Latin requirements for their classics majors. Um, it seems to me a little bit self-refuting to have like a class of classics major, right, where you where you try um, to to drop Greek and Latin because they are exclusionary or racist, um, and then not have that same judgment apply inevitably to the entire major itself. Um, but but is is this what's going on? Is that what happened to the academy? Right? What happened to um, you know universities as a place to learn, as you as you say, that the, these great texts as food for the soul, right? Um, as something that really should be studied, um, everybody should study, and and has something to offer to people, whether they agree or disagree with any particular concept in it. I mean, how did our academies move so quickly away from that idea? I think specifically in America, right? Because um, you know, you you went attended Oxford, and it's not that politics there are necessarily in the UK are are any better or worse. I, I tend to think they're a little worse, but um, there's all kinds of comparisons that could be made about the the respective politics. But but the classics seem to have clung longer. Um, clung on longer in the academy in in Europe and in the UK than they have in America. Do, do you know why that is? And and generally, what is your opinion on the direction of the academy? Is it salvageable in America? Or do does everybody who has something worthwhile uh, to teach just need to get a podcast? <laughs> well, I'll start with Princeton. And then I'll sort of try to draw out of that some answers to these other questions, which you raised, which are so important. Um, and on which books have been written, by the way. So we'll we'll do our best, right? Um, I, I, so, right, Princeton canceled the requirement for students to read in Greek and Latin, to learn Greek and Latin in order to do their version, basically, of a major in classics. And the first thing probably to say is that people should read Greek and Latin in translation. 
Nobody has any argument against that. And in fact, as more people should read Greek and Latin in translation, and nobody should feel that they have to, you know, they have to be experts in these languages in order to get something out of a translation of the Odyssey, right? I mean, none of these things are, are, are up for dispute. What's up for dispute is the nature of the discipline of classics itself, sort of as, as you suggested. And really what this degree is, uh, in essence, is like the last vestige of a tradition that goes back to the medieval period and before, which is the tradition of the university, right? I mean, already in the year 1000, before, you know, Oxford and, and Cambridge and the University of Paris really came into their own. There was a, you know, centuries old tradition in the Muslim world and in Europe, um, mostly in, in sort of clerical situations in, in churches of studying these texts that came down to us from antiquity and studying them in their original languages. And most importantly, talking about them in Latin, right? This is the famous idea of the lingua franca. And the, the, the word university, universitas, is a sort of Latin coinage describing like everybody, everybody can come, everybody, you know, once you sort of pay the price of admission, which is mastery of these languages, it, it no longer matters where you're from. And this is sort of a revolutionary idea that we now think of we kind of take for granted, right, this this global community of, of people who come together around the great search for truth. Like, um, But this is being invented at this time. It's being invented using a common tongue. If you want that, you're always going to have something of, of that kind, right? If you want to be part of that great conversation, you got to learn the language in which it's conducted. Um, the, the simple fact is the Princeton Classics Department doesn't believe any of the stuff that I just said anymore, right? I mean, that, and, and this is something that's been going on for years. It's not just, this is kind of the latest development, this cancellation, but, you know, Princeton has this professor, Daniel Padilla Peralta, um, who's been prominent for a while. There was a big splashy uh, profile of him in the New York Times and much of the department's sort of public facing language now reflects the idea that Classics is inherently a participant in the system of whiteness, in the system of oppression. Um, and in part, it's, that's because it's exclusionary. The idea being, you know, if you don't have money and you don't have uh, class, and you haven't been raised in the right way, you don't come to school knowing, knowing, Latin, knowing Latin and Greek, right? And so then you're at a disadvantage. Well, first of all, I, I've taught students like that. And it's true. It's not fair. But there's always going to be that one price of admission. And the point of Latin and Greek is, right, this is the one price of admission. Once you once you learn these things, it doesn't matter where you came from. Um, why are the why is this happening? Why is the discipline basically self-destructing, turn, turning inward on itself to undermine its very foundations? Um, there are a lot of answers to that question. I would say, though, that like and this is kind of a line that I trot out somewhat flippantly is like this was done on purpose and it was done by commies. And this is part of this sort of turn, this social turn of Marxism, in, as you say, specifically in America, where the existence of a robust middle class made it difficult for economic Marxism to take on, that, to, to, that you couldn't really convince people that they were oppressed according to socioeconomic class. What did you do? Well, you know, Antonio Gramsci, Herbert Marcuse, these names that people toss around, the burden of their thought, at least in America, is that you do social consciousness raising. You turn, I mean, the invention of things like white privilege comes from Noel Ignatiev and, the, you know, people who participated in this, in this sort of second wave of Marxism. And really that's, you know, we're, we're not just seeing that in the academy, we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it 
you know, on the streets with BLM. We're seeing it, uh, I think, inform a lot of the kind of LGBTQ plus R plus IAA, whatever. I mean, these are tactics that are invented in some ways on the streets by inheritors, intellectual inheritors of cultural Marxism. And part of the point there is to make people hate, I mean, to, to instill a logic which carried to its conclusion will basically cause the great institutions of the West to self-destruct, which is what they're doing. Um, it seems to me that rejection, which I think you rightly um, characterize as having kind of jumped the walls of the academy and become endemic, really, to every facet of our institutions, of our culture. Um, you can't live in the modern world without bumping up against that rejection. Um, here in America, it takes the shape um, primarily, I think, uh, as opposition to the American regime, right? The founding. Um, and and as you say, though, it, it also includes, for example, the opposition to learning Latin and Greek and reading Aristotle and Plato. Uh, why do America's domestic critics see America as an extension of, of that um, Western regime? Are they right to say that? Um, and what is the, then what is the relationship between the American regime and, and the classical? How are we as Americans connected to that tradition? How are we perhaps uh, a particular branch of it? Or, or is there some tension there? How, how, what's our relationship as Americans, uh, citizens of a very new country, uh, relatively speaking in world history, what's our relationship to the classics and the ancients? This is how I can tell that you are a friend of Claremont, because of course this is a, <laughs> this is a question that vexes uh, scholars in general of the American founding, but it's one that Straussians and Claremonsters are 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 fixated on. And so stipulated at the outset that you know I am not the spokesman of Straussianism or of the Claremont Institute, right? I mean I have my own take on this. Others may think differently, but you know it has been puzzling me recently that. Or I've found it noteworthy that opponents of woke opponents, you might say, of of classical antiquity, um, don't even really seem to know what exactly it is about classical antiquity they they don't like. And this is a phenomenon that you see in general in revolutionary movements that, like, several degrees, generations away from the founding of the movement, people are just kind of going on autopilot. But an example of this is Heather Levine, who I believe I have her name right. She's this Massachusetts public school teacher who tweeted recently and got fervor for tweeting. Uh, very, very glad to say we got the Odyssey canceled. And she's part of a hashtag disrupt texts. You know, it's this idea that whiteness needs to be rooted out of our whiteness, whiteness, by the way, meaning everything bad, right? Whiteness needs to be rooted out um, of our curriculum. Now, whiteness is not a concept in the ancient Greek world. The Greeks were not white. They were kind of brownish, you know, and for what it's worth. Um, and, and, and I was sort of trying to figure out, like, does, does Heather Levine actually know what her problem is with the Odyssey? And I think the answer is probably no. Like, I, I, I think genuinely there is just now, you know, a kind of self-sustaining logic of things that are celebrated, things that are thought to somehow belong to this culture and within this culture are bad and things that are outside are good because marginalization, right? I mean, these, these, these sorts of thoughts and ideas are, you know, in, in some ways even more deep in Marxism than class analysis, right? The kind of marginalized versus central distinction is, it's like if, 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 if class analysis is the 
as the matter, the content of Marx's thought, than marginalized, good marginalized versus evil uh, central is sort of the, the form of Marxist thought. And it's turned out that that form is applicable up along a lot of different axes. So the first answer to your question is, you know, I, I think that America's domestic opponents are attacking America on a basis which teaches them to think about things in terms of outsiders and insiders and to want to destroy those that they perceive as, as insiders. But the larger question, whether they are right, right, that there is something uniquely or distinctly American about Western civilization, or maybe better, right, the other way around, whether America is Western and counts as part of, of Western civilization. I mean, my answer to that is, is an emphatic yes. And the counter argument to me is essentially that uh, Enlightenment era liberalism, which America is sometimes thought to represent, right, personal liberty, personal autonomy, um, represents a radical break, actually, from the traditions of Athens and Jerusalem, because those traditions have always understood polities and people as woven inexorably into a, into a political fabric, as not autonomous, as not sort of personally, individually free. And this idea the government exists to protect your rights, right? This was actually a, a, an aberration. I mean, I'm thinking here of somebody like Patrick Deneen, right? Um, now, it seems to me as if America represents the perfect, the perfection of a series of ideas that was going very badly wrong during the same time that America was founded. Yes, it is true that personal liberty without any counterbalance, without any idea of the common good, without any idea of law and order, um, and and this kind of anti-religious sentiment, right? You see those go terribly wrong right around the same time as the American Revolution, especially, of course, in the French Revolution, right? So we know that these th that there were these kind of um, byways veering off of the, of the Western tradition during this time. Uh, but there's also in the West, inherent in the West, there's an idea about how you reform and how you grow and how you move into the next phase of things. And this is really important for us right now because we're up against all these unprecedented challenges, digital, you know, and not all of them are leftist, right? The, the, the digital revolution challenges our sense of ourselves as human beings. We're gonna have to figure out some way of, of dealing with that. And the question is, how can you tell if, if tradition is sort of a major part of how you celebrate things? How can you tell when something new is also good? And the metaphor that I keep coming back to, which is everywhere in, in Lewis and in Edmund Burke in, in all of these great thinkers who address this, is that of a tree, right? You can tell when a tree sprouts a new branch that it belongs to a tree. And you can tell when something is, is totally separate from, from the tree. And you can tell, you know, because the tree is a kind of thing with a kind of nature. And even if the thing that comes next out of the tree is a flower, which looks nothing like the rest of the tree, you can see that that's growing organically. And so, so the, to me, what, what, Americans did in in 1776 and thereabouts is they said and they said this they they were asserting the rights of Englishmen in a wholly new context and that's the thing again that we have to remember like just as the digital era has transformed our context the new world transformed people's context Machiavelli said this he said I have to invent a new political philosophy because there's a whole new world out there and and the to me what the American founding fathers did and why I love the founding so, so deeply um, is they figured out how to port the West, the great traditions of the West, the, the religious property, the, the sober sense of honor and duty into a world where people were, were yearning to be free. And that's very beautiful. 
you know, you're really anticipating the thing I was going to ask you next, because um, I was going to ask you about how we balance or evaluate um, that, that enlightenment tradition um, and values like liberty, pluralism, tolerance, and how we balance that with tradition, uh, with the common good. Um, but I guess I still want to ask you to refine that a little bit further. Uh, when, when, how do you tell if it's a flower or a, um, you know, a tumor? I don't know what the equivalent of that yeah. is um, with, with uh, a tree. I'm not a horticulturalist. And, um, but so how, how, how do we evaluate whether a new branch is healthy or good, um, even if it does stem from certain antecedents as, as virtually all you know, developments do have, uh, except for the beginning of the universe, perhaps. Um, yeah, <laughs> open question, but yes. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, as, as all things do stem from some antecedent, right, how do we tell which ones are the flowers and which ones are a diseased branch or an aberration? By what standard um, can we evaluate our traditions and say, these these traditions are good, they are uh, a new application of of universally true ideas, um, and which ones are a flawed application or or bad ideas that will lead um, to an immense amount of suffering or to um, you know a disease that'll eat away at the whole tree at the root, as I think we're really seeing now. You keep referencing self destruction. That's that's really what's happening, right? We're we're eating away at the foundations that grew the whole tree. That's right. And I think it's a really, I mean, it, it, it bears refining. It's a question that we could sort of puzzle over, I think, together for for many months. I, this metaphor of figuring out whether something is good or bad, the way that you sort of evaluate a tree is, is from the Bible, right? By your fruits, you shall know them. Um, and the kind of the idea there is actually that there's a lot of stuff that we can't evaluate and judge in the way that exactly you're suggesting we can't always tell i mean a lot of this is about you know, in the bible it's about personal morality right you can't you can't always tell what's going on in somebody's heart what they're thinking silently but you can you can see the sort of outward manifestations of those things and so patience chastity charity long suffering these things are fruits that bespeak good roots you can't produce those good fruits without good roots good inner roots um and so you know in order to perform that kind of evaluation for a person or a society, you have to recover something that I think we are very uncomfortable talking about. And that is an, an assertion that we know good from bad. Uh, it kind of strikes right at the heart of things, right? This idea that uh, we have, we actually have a, a flawed but real set of perceptions um, that enables us to see things that are good. We know, we know, and this is why I often ask people who come at me with sort of random woke stuff, right? Like, how's that working out for you, right? We know that that being increasingly infertile, increasingly, you know, uh, addicted to, to SSRIs, we know that like having blue hair and mutilating yourself, these things like, you know, it's harsh perhaps to say, but these things are bad. They, they, they're, they're, they're immiserating. They make, they make people miserable. Um, and, and so in order to make that claim, we, we have to simply say, you know, that's self-evident, which of course is a founding concept in our country to begin with. So if we can't say 
that certain things are self-evident and certain things are self-evidently good, um, then we're not in the country we thought we were anyway. And so, you know, people get very antsy when folks start talking about the common good because they think that this necessarily automatically means that what you want is for the Pope to rule America, right? I mean, there's like a, a real strong association in people's heads between common good conservatism and some sort of backwards looking uh, theist like autocracy. And there's, you know, some of that out there, but not that much, actually. I mean, really what people mean when they talk about the common good is abolishing this fiction, which is not an American, it's not a, a founding fiction. It's actually a sort of impose an imposition, this fiction that we can do politics together without pronouncing on good and evil, and that we're totally incapable of pronouncing on good and evil. Like we can't, you know, but in fact, of course, all regimes depend on pronouncing on good and evil. Why is murder outlawed? Because it's bad. Why? Like, you know, at, at a certain point, if you if you do the toddler thing and you ask why and you, why and why and why, eventually you're going to get like, well, because this is bad or because this is good. Um, and I think that's really missing from our evaluative politics and, and is the answer or the root of the answer to to your question. Um, you know, I think another um, aspect of what we're talking about is, is jettisoning, jettisoning, I cannot say that word, (laughs) jettisoning, um, jettisoning, uh, something that like a standard, an objective standard of what's good and bad, um, in favor of, of something that's more internal, uh, like authenticity, that if, if you are, um, expressing yourself authentically, that's the most important thing. The, the relationship between your expression in the world, um, and your interior self, um, it's not by, by the fruits, right? Um, it, it is more that everybody has to, um, call fruits, whatever is authentically expressed in yourself, I would say, to, to mm. mix all the metaphors that we've been using. <laughs> um, you have written um, uh, something that I want to read real briefly for our audience, just a, a paragraph or a sentence or two. Our modern obsession with authenticity, meaning in essence, never filtering one's spontaneous thoughts and impulses, obscures the fact that discipline does not amount to disingenuousness. Could you elaborate that you wrote that in the, the Claremont Review of Books? You're reviewing um, a book about the relationship between the founding and um, classical antiquity. But um, authenticity seems to be in all kinds of ways, and we could list a lot of the applications of this, the new standard um, that has really replaced it, an honest evaluation of, of good and bad that, as you say, sort of leads to a backstop of whys that um, you know modern humans just can't seem uh, to countenance or answer. Oh my gosh. And as you're like the ideal reader, this is like, you, you make these, one makes these throwaway comments. I'm sure you know this experience. One makes these throwaway comments and, and then hopes that that is like the thing that people take away. But yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you're asking about this because I think this obsession with authenticity and, and, and associating authenticity, not with, you know, something like sincerity, with 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 not concealing things or lying, um, but with just having no filter, right, of, of, of everything that comes to me spontaneously and organically, that's what needs to be out there in the world, because that's my truth, right, my lived experience, this is my truth, all of these things that people say all the time. Um, I mentioned that books have been written on these topics, one really great book to sort of help understand this is Carl Truman's um, the, the Rise of the Modern Self. And Truman has basically associates this development, not only with cultural Marxism, but with um, 
therape therapeutic culture and and with Freud, right? And and this is, uh, uh, you know, Freud is like a big elephant in the room that we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, in part because he's he's harder to deal with because he's he's first of all he was a genius, and and second of all, you know, he was also um, terribly hostile toward a lot of the things that I want to love and endorse, God, for example. Um, and so he's a complicated figure because he was observing some, some, I think, some very true things about the way the human psyche works. But at the same, I mean, in, including, for example, that we do have these sort of in, in, internal repressions that we need to sort of find ways of dealing with. Um, and, you know, that, uh, that sex is very important, right? I mean, these are, these are things that, that he was observing and putting his finger on at a time when maybe people were not allowing that to be said. And, and, and so this is one thing that, you know, uh, when, when societies, good societies become scared of talking about things that they know to be dangerous, um, then people who will talk about them win, even if those people are worse. Um, and Freud is, I think, a good example of this. And, and the Freudian turn is basically the turn toward believing about yourself that what is within is true and what is imposed on you by society is unnatural, false, and uh, constructed. And from this line of thinking, you can see how we get any number of things, including, for example, the idea that gender is a construct, right? Um, because, of course, we're not all born naturally inhabiting our gender roles. We are born with an aspiration to inhabit the gender roles that society teaches us, you know, from one generation to the next that, well, you know, men, you know, maybe men aren't born with guns in their hands, but they are as a population born with aspirations to courage. And so society develops over many generations these traditions for teaching people about those things. And Freudianism basically comes along and says, well, that's inauthentic, right? That's it. That's sort of unnatural. The thing that that sweeps away um, kind of secretly, and people don't realize this, but that sweeps away is the great Aristotelian maxim that man is a political animal. And people think that that means that man like naturally needs to engage in, you know, city council or something. Um, but that's not what he's talking about at all. I mean, the polis, right, which is the just a community, a political community of people living together and making rules for that. There's no such thing as humans who live together and don't do that. Any three, four, five people that live in a space for an extended period of time will develop rituals, habits, customs, traditions, mores. Um, and that tells you that actually ritual and habit and tradition is not an imposition. It's not fake. It's actually something that we use to fully humanize ourselves and to fully humanize the generations that come after us. Um, and so Freud has deprived us, I think, of being able to, to, to endorse that, of being able simply to say, yeah, you know, I don't actually, you know, naturally want to, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, start a family. But my, my, my society is strongly encouraging me toward that. And I feel this desire, this sort of natural human desire to, to live into that expectation. And, you know, we're taught that that's oppressive, that that's evil, that that's wrong. But there's no impression, oppression or force really involved, especially not in modern society. Um, we, ironically, this Freudian idea that we have to sort of scrape away everything that all these accretions and get down to the heart of what we naturally are actually deprives us of a lot of our natural survival mechanisms, a lot of our natural impulse to live together in community, to form continuity across time. Um, it's really pernicious when you think about it. And it's also exhausting. Like how 
much effort does it take to spend every five minutes of your day internally analyzing about whether or not what you're saying is really what comes to you naturally or whether it's something your mother said like 20 years ago, you know, people do this forever and it, it, it kind of freezes us, I think. Yeah, this is this is something where I, as an atheist, just find myself again and again aligned with um, yeah. you know, religious conservatives, and that I, I just I, I have not observed that uh, our interior feelings or emotions, when given full range of expression, constantly, um, that's the life of a toddler, and and it's it's also as you say, it's immiserating, right? I, I don't see in the real world that this actually brings a lot of happiness to people, um, which is why, you know, it drives me crazy that this therapeutic language has infected our politics. Even uh, you're, you're referencing Freud, but it seems a slightly more modern phenomenon to take the language of, of psychotherapy um, and apply it to well beyond the therapist couch, right? Um, to apply it to our modern politics, to um, have Congresswomen, you know, to using that kind of language of trauma and, um, you know, the, the kind of a <laughs> um, language that you, you wouldn't think about uh, even, I think even maybe 15 years ago, uh, used often um, for the course of political debate, uh, or even I think people would be a little ashamed even with not incredibly close friends, right? Um, now is used for an audience of millions of people on the internet and and even within our most serious uh, sort of politics that we do together. Um, but another problem you've you've reminded us um, of some of the the classical wisdom on has been how to think about the the problem of of being in a body, right? To be embodied, to have both a, a mind, you would say, a soul, um, and to to be inside this this meat casing we call our bodies. Um, and recently, in the American mind, there was a a fantastic, highly recommend this. Um, there was essentially a series of essays from different contributors, including yourself on this problem of how we ought to think about our bodies. So you wrote in the American Mind um, a piece on so-called body positivity, right? And the link that um, between these seemingly contradictory poles and impulses and are, are simultaneously endorsed by our society. One is, for example, that it's actually right and good to surgically dissect our bodies if they don't match our perceived internal selves. Um, but at the same time, we're told that um, the appropriate response to what were once considered negative, but actually well within our control um, aspects of our body, uh, like, for example, obesity, um, those are those ought to be embraced as our true selves um, that that are unchangeable, that that are, should be embraced as as sort of something very essential to our identity. So you write, quote, um, it seems the more we live online, the more we're tormented by the sight and stench of flesh. Yet our efforts to transcend matter, whether ancient or modern, render us neurotic and sick. So what what do the ancients have to say about, say, minor um, sex transition or, or and on the flip side, Kim Kardashian, right, um, and body positivity? Well, you know, one of the, the kind of the point or the inspiration of that essay is exactly, as you say, that this is a very old problem. And there is no reason or there, there is no like totally satisfactory answer to it that you're going to open some book and be like, ah, now 
I will not wake up tomorrow and feel a little bit too like 10 pounds overweight or feel like I am, haven't got enough sleep. Right. I mean, these things afflict us precisely because we are two things or at least because there are two aspects of us. I mean, one of the things that I argue in that piece is that those two aspects ultimately are inseparable. But it's sure an old idea that you could kind of separate these two things from one another. And I think a reason why this is a, such an important thing to be talking about right now is because the internet and digital technology has really brought that discomfort to a head in a whole lot of ways. First of all, because it seems as if what lives online is a kind of abstracted mind or soul version of us in the sense that we're not physically present, but here are you and I doing this podcast together, right? And it seems as if we've just basically beamed ourselves into the ether. Um, and, you know, at least there's video on this one, right? Sometimes it's like, not, there's not even that. And so you're just, you become this disembodied brain in a jar or whatever. Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, the reason that the Kardashians are important here is that the other thing digital technology lets some of us do at least is perfectly curate our bodies in a way that in real life they could never be curated. So we can use Photoshop, we can choose just the right angle to post on Instagram. We can, I mean, and we do this with our whole lives. And so we generate both this idea that the real stuff that's going on is happening in this digital space where, where our bodies are sort of left behind where we forget about our bodies and we construct this fantasy narrative about what those bodies and the, the, that real life is actually like that we then present to our very online friends. And so we sort of look around and we think like everybody is having this perfect bodily experience, except me. Like every time I log off, I just feel fat or I feel too skinny or I like whatever. And, and so I, I, I think that, you know, Again, this is an old, old problem. Like people don't, mostly people who spend their life thinking don't want to have bodies. They want just to be kind of purely connected with the transcendent, whatever reality of, of life. Um, and this comes to us, I, I think, actually not from Plato, if we read him well, but from people who very quickly in Plato's immediate aftermath sort of took Plato to an extreme. Plato identifies this sort of dual nature of humanity, the, the body and the mind or the body and the soul. Um, and then people like Porphyry and Plotinus basically take this to an, such an extreme that they, they just want to die. I mean, they, I mean, there's really a, a heavy kind of death cult aspect of this, because ultimately, right, if you think that at your death, you're going to be liberated from your body. And if you think that the body is just dragging you down out of your eternal purity, um, the natural conclusion is like, let's let's get out of let's get out of dodge as soon as possible right um i i i suspect that a lot of what we are seeing among young people and especially actually i think young women um that looks crazy to us older fogies i mean relative to gen z right i am a millennial and therefore an ancient and i, I i'm i'm uh, what is now the geriatric millennial generation oh good yeah the the sub the sub generation the micro generation of like really old millennials <laughs> um and yeah i mean now there is this whole new up-and-coming group of people that basically live their whole lives online and they're doing all of this crazy stuff like they're taking you know, hormone therapy or or just transgender ideation has skyrocketed um and in part this is because the 
the narrative has shifted to sort of lionize that sort of thing. But also, I mean, Abigail Schreer, who has interviewed a lot of these young people um, who, who've experienced gender dysphoria, um, has really brought to the fore the fact that a lot of this stuff just emerges seamlessly out of things like anorexia which suggests to me that what this really is, is a discomfort, an extreme discomfort with the body among young girls who are having presented to them no feasible way to be in a female body um, that is sort of appealing, but also not self-destructive. I think like this is a real, real problem that the Kardashian bod is really the only model. And then the only other option is this sort of reaction against that, which is be fat like, you know, be, be aggressively fat, like be, you know, endorse your, your hugeness because like nobody can tell you how to be. And the long, this is a long winded way of getting around to the ancient answer to this question, which is, you know what, your, your body is actually not an appendage. Like your, your body is not something that your soul is just piloting for a little while, or even a meat suit, which is what you and I have now both called it in some capacity. Right. Um, the, the biblical tradition about this is, you know, and then God formed man out of the dust and breathed into the dust, breathed into this like sculpture. And then man became a living soul. And we forget this. We think like, you know, that the, the th God's breath is the soul. Right. But the imagery there is actually and, and I'm actually I'm suggesting this not really as like, a, you know, I'm not evangelizing you particularly here. I'm just sort of like outlining the way that Christians understand this. Right. That a living soul is a is a dual complex is a binding of consciousness, which is this incredible, ineffable thing, to flesh. And there is no version of us. There's no actual, like that imaginary version of us is not a Christian imaginary version. Like we think of Christianity as positing that one day we're all going to float up into the air. It's not biblical at all. It's actually quite the opposite. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven to earth. I mean, the whole point of the incarnation really is that like, this is, this is it. Like, and what we're doing, what we're about is aligning those two things. What we're about is basically getting our mind or our soul or whatever into a place where it feels comfortable with the body as its outward expression or as it's, uh, as the thing into which it is encoded, all of these. And, and you know, th there are classical versions of this too, that don't rely on Christianity, like Aristotelian hylomorphism form in matter. Um, but when you talk about feeling comfortable in your own skin, right? That's actually what we're all kind of going for. Um, and so some version, right, of, of feeling like, yeah, this is where I belong, right? I belong in this body and therefore I should make it my home in the same way that, you know, you would want your home to look attractive. You would want your body to be uh, to the extent that you can and it's possible to be healthy, to be fit, to be and, and not to view that as some kind of like external thing, but as like a spiritual quest. Um, all of these things are, are things that we can recover. And people are, I mean, this is why everybody's like weight, lifting weights online all the time. You know, it's like people are recovering this, this sense. Um, and the trick I think is to do that in such a way. And actually you and, uh, was it Alex Kashuta and Helen Roy, um, were in on Twitter kind of going back and forth with me about this in a really helpful way, because my inclination is then to like flip in the other direction and just try to perfect my body, right? And try to like make my body because I want my soul to be perfect. I want my body to be perfect. Um, and there is, there's a danger there, but it's, it's, it's a better knife edge to be walking, I think, than this weird dissociative online thing that we're doing. Well, I, I think part of the reason, um, 
we pointed out that there are dangers in that direction. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but the word that kept going through my mind while you were talking was decay, right? The inevitable decay of the body. It's intimately connected to death. We don't like to be reminded um, of the fact that uh, our our bodies ourselves will, will one day expire, decay first, become pr- probably in most cases, unless you're, you're James Dean and die perfect and young, um, which most people do not want. Mm-hmm. Um, we inevitably will become grotesque, disgusting and decay and then die. And this is something that in modern life is, um, you know, inevitable, obviously is inevitable, not just in modern life, but like we can avoid thinking about it in modern life in a way that was impossible for, for past eras, right? Um, where they lived with death day in, day out, you know, um, even in the early American Republic, the number of children who die, uh, who died before the age of five and then by the age of 15 was extraordinarily high. You know, you, you could not live unmarked by death um, for 20, 30, 40, f- even 50 years, as so many of us um, do in, in modern life, thanks to you know things that I'm very thankful for, advancements in medicine, right? Um, advancements in technology. But those advancements have in some way um, allowed us to avoid the presence of death uh, and avoid thinking about it and avoid grappling with it. Um, you know, do our incredible advancements in this regard leave us in some sense blind and defenseless um, to life's inevitable tragedies? And how how can the classics help us grapple um, in, in a way that will will really uh, allow us to to accept these inevitabilities um, and to uh, you know not allow them to to sour both our lives or our souls or, or, um, to, to warp ourselves, um, in, in incredible ways that are sometimes so pernicious in an event to, in, in an attempt to avoid the inevitable. That's beautifully framed. And I think this is a great example of something that is good. That is not actually a corruption or an ideological assault the way that I think cultural Marxism is. Um, but that nevertheless poses very profound challenges. I mentioned that I think digital technology is one example of this, right? We, well, I, I don't want to erase digital technology from the world. I make my livelihood off of it. I, I think it's great, you know. Um, but it it really shakes us to our core in, in all these ways that we've just discussed. And I think, you know, the, the advances in medicine that you mentioned are similar in ways that we haven't even acknowledged, despite the fact that penicillin's been around for quite some time. You know, like th- this is... Uh, phenomenon or the kind of optimism that seems to me to emerge in the post-war era in this country. Uh, This blithe idea that there will now be perpetual peace seems to me to be underwritten in some sense by the denial of death that you're describing. It seems as if in order to believe that we're all going to get along, in order to believe that, you know, we're going to bring COVID deaths down to zero, whatever else you think about COVID, right? We're not going to bring COVID deaths down to zero. And this is something that, you know, we've really been brought up face to face with in the past year. I think Christianity is, as, as I've said, and you and I have discussed, right? Like Christianity is not the only answer to this problem, but it, it at least it has an answer. And in order to have an answer to this problem, you have to know that it is a problem, right? You have to sort of say the human body decays and dies. This causes us terrible grief. I mean, not just when it happens to other people, but the concept of it, the notion that it should happen 
at all when, as I've just sort of said at some length, you know, when, when our bodies are actually kind of miraculous, beautiful things, they are, they are, you know, souls made out of flesh. And, and that's, uh, you know, so profound and so insane that the idea that it would never mind decay, but, you know, be born broken, right? I mean, there are, there are terrible things that people are born with and suffer from and then die young. Um, this is an ugly, ugly truth to come to grips with. And despite the fact that we have technologically made it very easy for many, for some people, for rich people, you know, for, for affluent people in first world countries to ignore, we've made it very easy for, for people to ignore it. Um, despite that fact, we haven't even moved one degree toward abolishing it. I mean, there's no advance in medicine or technology over the history of human life that has ever reduced the death rate to anything under 100%. And so, I guess what I'm coming around to saying here is just that to be a grown-up society, to be a grown-up person, you need something that acknowledges and answers the fact of death. I know, you know, personally, I know my answer. My answer is that this is not supposed to happen. I mean, this is how I know in some ways that this is not supposed to happen. And, and therefore, even though we can't possibly fathom what would ever make up for it, I think as as Christians, we're called basically to trust. This is sort of our big leap, leap of faith, right? Is that this, there's something that will make up for it in the end. Um, other options are available. <laughs> uh, the, the Stoic option, I think, is very sound and salutary. It involves cultivating a certain degree of, of composure and ataraxia in the face of it, in the face of death and pain. Um, the Buddhist answer, which is that sort of total detachment is the is the way forward this this strikes me as an answer but again in order to make any of those answers you have to first pose the problem right life is suffering there is this terrible suffering and yeah i think i think why wouldn't you sort of deny that if you can't we all want to look away from ugly truths and and some of us have been able to and unfortunately then they come around to bite you in a worse way um, I'm glad you brought up virtue uh, and, and stoicism because the, the final uh, question that I'd like, actually I have one more after this, but this is the final substantive question I wanted to ask you. Um, it seems that fortitude or courage um, is a, a virtue that we are having to reacquire um, in, in the course of our politics. You know, what does the classical canon suggest um, about fortitude or courage? Is there a difference between those two things? Um, is it a distributed attribute or a, a discipline to be learned? Um, is it an ideal? Is it something that people are simply born with or or not born with? Um, can it be used? And I know I'm throwing questions at you, but um, can it be used for good and ill? You know, what do the classics teach us about courage and fortitude? Because I, I think that really is, um, and, and as I've asked a lot of our other guests on this podcast, that really is in, in many ways, um, the crux of what our moment comes down to. Yeah, I'm so interested that this is something that, that you have been tracking as well, because, you know, I find on Young Heretics that my listeners teach me a lot every day, and they teach me in part by what they continually ask questions about do a mailbag segment at the end of every show, but I also hear from people on Twitter and whatever. And this issue of courage as a virtue is something that I mentioned in one episode early on and now have come back to again and again. It fixates, it, it, it obsesses me. Um, I think that not to be that guy, but this is one of those questions that we can address really fulsomely if we 
think about the words that the Greeks used for the actual Greek language. I mean, this is another reason why you, you learn these things in their original languages, that the people had ways of thinking about them that were encoded into their vocabulary. And the, the we'll start, I guess, with, with, with virtue, which is at a, at a far, far remove our way of expressing the Greek concept of arete. Arete in Greek just means excellence. You can have arete at running if you're very fast. A very fast runner has running arete. Um, that's not what you would call a virtue in English, because when we use that word, what we mean is a very specific kind of arete, which Aristotle identified as ethike arete, ethical virtue. And that's where we get our word ethics, right? Ethical virtue has to do with your internal, the, the dispositions of the soul. And so when you ask, right, is, is, is courage born or is courage learned and trained? The answer is both in a very complicated feedback loop. And this is part of why it becomes such a problem when as a civilization, you lose your grip on a virtue like courage, on an excellence like courage. Um, it's because we, all of us are born with different capacities, different gifts, different talents. Um, I'm actually, I mentioned wanting a neat room, right? I'm terrible at that. I have like a, just a, a constitutional deficiency um, at thinking about people's comfort in my space and in my surroundings. That is something I have had to learn to cultivate over much time and with much effort. Other things like work ethic, right? Discipline, other virtues come more naturally to me. We're all born with a kind of starter kit of the soul um, and habits and just natural inclinations. But in that process, right, of learning a virtue, of, of trying to train a virtue, um, you must have help. And you must have help from a very early age. This is, of course, we know this already now. I mean, a lot of this stuff that I'm saying could be translated very easily into the language of genetics and psychology, right? I mean, these are ancient insights that Aristotle elaborates in the Nicomachean Ethics, but many of them are, are born out by what we now know about, you know, we're born certain ways, but also our up upbringing is very important. Our education is very important. Um, and so these are cultural matters that have to be passed on from generation to generation. And parents and educators, right, are, are, are a big a big part of this, especially when you need you find somebody who maybe doesn't show show courage um, just naturally. And you need to train somebody and you need to do that in tough ways, like, you know, force them into sports and, you know, maybe like have them do like practice combat or whatever, all these things. Um, on top of which, courage is actually extremely complicated when you think about it, because it straddles that line between virtue just as a kind of excellence that's morally neutral or morally blank, um, like foot racing. And then virtue as a kind of ethical excellence, on the other hand, um, which is itself what we think is, we think of these as like being good at being human, right? The reason we're so focused on the ethical virtues is because they, they seem to be essential to, to good humanity. Um, and, and courage is a prerequisite. I mean, the reason why the loss of it is so damning for us, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn actually talked about this in the, I think it was the 80s, he said there seems to be a deficiency of courage. You see this in the in the academy, the woke revolution, people who, you know, professors who won't speak up. And of course, that has a terrible um, knock-on effect for students and so forth, right? Um, the reason this is so damning is because as C.S. Lewis famously said, courage is not a virtue, it's every virtue at the testing point. And what he meant by that, I think, is that in order to really have any other virtue, like generosity, you have to have it no matter whether it's scary to show it or not. 
right? Uh, honesty, for example, you must be honest. And if you if you are only honest when you're not scared, then you're not really an honest person. And so courage is this kind of undergirding of all virtues. And yet what that means is that it can also be used in terrible ways, right? I mean, courage, people can show courage and do terrible things. You mentioned to me off mic that Bill Bill Maher was canceled for saying that the 9-11 uh, hijackers had, had were not cowards. And this is something, again, a, a problem that vexes Plato. It's a very old problem, but Mar has a point, right? I mean, there's something that, that those, that those uh, you know, evildoers show that call it courage, call it fortitude, call it whatever. It's that virtue that if properly applied, if directed toward the other virtues, um, we, we celebrate as, as courage. And so I guess the distinction that I would make is between courage full stop which we know is an excellence, but isn't necessarily a moral excellence, and courage directed in service of all the other virtues, without which, right, courage, neither courage nor the other virtues can exist in a in a kind of laudable form without one another. And I think, you know, training that and, and getting comfortable training it as a as a necessity for everything else is is one of the more important things that educators who care about this stuff can think about right now. Uh, so if you are a person like myself, I would say um, robbed of those educators for much of my formal education, um, where would you recommend that people begin um, engaging with the Western canon, with the classics, besides, of course, subscribing to Young Heretics? <laughs> uh, well, I think, you know, we've talked about a number of things now on this show that can help. Um, the digital revolution, despite, again, causing all sorts of problems for us, has also really undermined the power of institutional authority. And as far as I'm concerned, that's an excellent thing in an era when so many of our institutions are so corrupt, right? I mean, if we were living in the 1800s, and Princeton, or I mean, I'm not even sure when Princeton was founded, so I, I guess I shouldn't say Princeton, but you know, the the great elite universities decided that they weren't going to teach Latin and Greek anymore, or that they weren't going to require Latin. It would be devastating. Now, this news from Princeton comes out, and everybody was emailing me about it. This was funny. Everybody kept saying, like, "Are you going to comment on this Princeton thing?" And I was like, "Princeton? You still, uh, Princeton? Like, you still care about Princeton?" And so there are there are these amazing resources that you can draw upon. The Ancient Language Institute is this new, very exciting new venture where people who want to learn Latin and Greek can study it. So that's if you if you're interested in the language part of it, that's a great place to start. Um, there's a, a a new standardized test called the Classic Learning Test, which basically aims to replace the SAT, which is now pretty thoroughly woke. Um, and a lot of universities and, and colleges now take the CLT as a kind of better test of whether students have been trained in these in these classical ideals. Um, and if you go on their website, which I think is cltexam.com, you'll find those colleges that that like or prefer the CLT, which in turn will tell you which colleges are still on the right track, right? Um, so this is, I guess, for people who are raising kids, who are thinking about where, who are themselves thinking about where to go to college. Um, but then there's people who come to this stuff kind of later in life. And a lot of the folks who reach out to me about the podcast are in that position. And they often, the first thing they say to me is like, I hear you talk about this stuff and you're so excited about it and it seems so exciting. And then I go away and I read it. And I find it completely impenetrable. Um, and I, I, I really get that. I think that 
this stuff has a lot of, you know, there are a lot of years between us and Homer and it's not as accessible as all that. that you can just crack the spine. I mean, I, I think that one thing you can do if you are having trouble with this stuff is, is read it with people. I mean, a lot of these works, people think of this as cheating or something, but a lot of these works were meant to be consumed and experienced in groups. The Iliad is a wonderful example. This is a communal performance that was going on, and now we have it in books, but it's meant to be read aloud, it's meant to be read together and discussed, and and part of how we form ourselves is, is in community. So I'm a big sort of book club fan, especially now that there are so many resources to like form uh, great books. Uh, book clubs and the five books that I always tell people that, that they should start with if you, if you have not yet read them are the whole Bible, regardless of your religious beliefs, because the, in the King James translation, it's as influential as the complete works of Shakespeare in transforming the thought of the English speaking world. Uh, and the, so then the next thing is the complete works of Shakespeare, uh, which is kind of cheating because that's a lot of books, but that's uh, number two, um, the Aeneid because of what it did to the genre of epic and will get you introduced to epic in general. Um, the Great Gatsby, because it is short and it will lead you into a sort of American literature, which I think Americans should, should know about how to read uh, American work. And um, Machiavelli, either The Prince or Discourses on Livy, because as I mentioned earlier, Machiavelli kind of inaugurates what will then become political philosophy. Um, so all of your listeners can now fight me on these uh, recommendations, as I'm sure they will, because they'll have it. But that, I mean, I just, I don't know, I'm big into just like making lists and then working your way through them. I think that a lot of what we've talked about has to do with, you know, talk about authenticity or not, right? Does it really, does it really matter, you know, whether, whether you like naturally want to read these things or not, if you want, if, if what you find is that you want to sort of engage with the Western canon, I think you do a fair bit of sort of like making lists and just reading through them and reading through them with people. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Um, you listeners can find Spencer's work um, at The American Mind, at the Claremont Review of Books, and at his podcast, um, The Young Heretics podcast. And uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to you. Um, High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Until then, be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.